Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there. We can read it again because it's not very long. Ephesians chapter 3. It's the second prayer of Paul that's recorded in this letter. And um, Paul did wrote things for various reasons. And I suppose we have to ask ourselves, why did he tell us this prayer? And I suppose one answer to that is he's giving himself as a model for praying. Because he does say several times in his letters to imitate him. So uh, we can read uh, this prayer. And for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I forget who it was who said it, but a well-known Christian once said, that he was a man of extremes. And I suspect he's not alone in that. That um, Christian experience can vary widely. And not just vary widely between Christians, but very widely in a Christian. And I suppose uh, the words that we have just sung from Psalm 42 um, initially uh, might seem to us as a kind of low ebb in his outlook. As the psalmist there says to God in verse 9, Why have you forgotten me? And it's not just his own sense of divine absence, but he also wonders what he can say to those who are saying to him, Where is this God of yours? I mean, they may imagine that the evidence for God should be on the outside. That somehow or other he should be able to point to it and say about something external, that's God. That's a sign of God at work. And we may be tempted to think that as well. That the, the proof that God is around is that he does something externally. But as we shift, as it were, to Paul's prayer, he's concerned about something internally. Now that's the proof 
of the presence of God. I don't know if you noticed when we sang the Psalm 42. I mean, the, the author um, gives the, the remedy before he mentions the problem. Because and the Psalms aren't written out of the blue. They are describing what somebody went through. And this man says there was, at the moment he's saying, as he records the psalm, a moment, I'm wondering where God is. But he doesn't wonder what God is doing. Because he says in verse 8, what is God doing? As I feel this isolation, what is God doing? And he says there in verse 8, the Lord is directing his love to me. So, that's a very intriguing perspective, isn't it? That in the midst of all his confusion, and he says, my soul within me is depressed, and all that kind of thing, and yet in the middle of his spiritual um, dilemma, he says, I know what God is doing at this moment. Whatever I feel myself, I know what God is doing. And what God is doing is directing his love to me. Sending it. And that, in a sense, is quite a challenge. Because up in heaven at the moment, what is God doing? And how long will he take for him to do it? When God directs his love, how long is it going to take to arrive? Is it going to take half an hour? A day? Who knows? But how long do we think it's going to take for God to send his love? And Paul gives answers to that question in this prayer. He starts it off with, for this reason. For what reason? And the, the reason is given in the previous paragraph. The reason, Paul, that makes this prayer is that he's got a responsibility that the Gentiles understand and experience the blessings of the gospel. He understands that. That's his role in life. He's an apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. It is a burden of his life that Gentiles and Jews, of course, because that was the two major divisions back then, but it's a burden of his life that these people experience what they can experience. And obviously, he taught them what was possible. But he didn't just leave it there. He prayed about it. So for this reason, he says, because I have this role 
given me given to me by Christ. Therefore I bow the knee and pray about it. And of course we it's part of his calling, isn't it? Which is a reminder, of course, that he took his calling very seriously. You know, McShane once said, What a man is before God, that is what he is. And here we find Paul before God. I bow my knees before the Father. That way of speaking indicates nearness, doesn't it? We need, I am before you, and you are before me. I mean, the very word before indicates nearness. And of course, Paul has been stressing the nearness we have as Christians. I mean, several times in this letter already, he has pointed out that because of Jesus, we have been given access. And these words, we have been given access, doesn't mean that we are outside, say it, five to five, and we decide to pray at five o'clock, so therefore we're given access at five o'clock. That's not what it means at all. When it says that we have been given access, we now have a new location in which we live. It's taken from an illustration from the, the so, social life of the times, where if you wanted access to an important person, you had to get an intermediary who would take you there. And once he had taken you there, he would leave you there. And we need someone to take us into the presence of God. And that person that takes us in is Jesus. And that's where we are. We don't flit in and out of the presence of God. We are taken from being away from God and we're brought nigh to God. And this new relationship is permanent. A Christian is a person who is given this wonderful privilege of living the entirety of his or her life in the presence of God. And therefore, when we pray, we don't have to find a new location. We pray in the place where Jesus has placed us. And where have we been placed? before the Father. That is where we are. It's amazing. Extraordinary. We are in the presence of God. But there's a difference in a sense of being in the presence of God and of being conscious that we're in the presence of God. And Paul here is conscious of it. That's where he spends his life. In the presence of God. And one of the things he's got to do in the presence of God is pray. Everything else he does, he also does in the presence of God. But one thing he has to do in the presence of God is pray. And in this prayer, 
I think he tells us something about a process. How do we, as it were, pray before the Father? And then he tells us about some experiences that can result in that, from that. Some very profound experiences. I don't know what we thought as we read these things that he's praying for. And he's not saying to the, his readers, his first century readers, he's not saying to them, you, you, those of you who are not so spiritual, this is not for you. He doesn't say that, does he? Well, he's, he's writing to all of them. And he's saying to them, I'm praying this for you. And therefore the expectation is that they will experience it. So he describes what it's like in this prayer. And then at the end of it, he's got a doxology. And the doxology is not detached from the prayer. The doxology is connected to the prayer. So we'll just think of these three things. The process. What's involved in praying before the Father? I think Paul mentions three things. As we noticed on another occasion, when God, when Paul speaks about the, the persons of a trinity, he likes to say something about them. He doesn't, he just doesn't mention them by name, as it were, but he says something about them. And as he's before the Father here, he thinks of the Father as the one from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. <clears throat> There's a translation issue in that clause, and it's the word every, because the same word can also be translated whole. And if it's translated whole, it would be from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, which is how the other versions translate it. It can mean either every, or it can mean whole. So when there's options, the only way to work out the answer is to look at the context. And what has Paul been speaking about in the context? Well, he's been speaking about the unity of Jews and Gentiles. Their unity together in the family of God. Translating it as every family could bring in the notion of division because each family is separate. So it looks to me as if we have to make our decision one way or the other, no matter what our deficiencies are, we have to make some kind of decision about it. So it looks to me as if there should be whole family. And that's not too surprising because who else is before the Father? As Paul prays. Every family in heaven and earth is not before the Father. But the whole family of believers is before the Father. So I think that's the first stage in the process. As we pray, we recognize the unity 
that belongs to the Father's children. Because Paul here is not just praying for an individual here and there. He's praying for every Christian. That they would know the blessings that he's praying for. So that's the first stage in the process. As we go to pray, who am I? Or as I go to pray? Or as you go to pray? If we're Christians, we're members of a family. And of course, that's even basic to the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Because how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. The very start of the Lord's Prayer tells us to think of the family. And here's Paul. And as he makes this amazing prayer here, he does the same thing. Often, I think, when we pray, we pray as if nobody else existed in the universe apart from us and God. And after we have spent time thinking about ourselves, we may have something to say about others. But Paul begins with thinking of the family of God. So that's step one in the process. Step two is well, if you're going to ask somebody for something, it's worth asking what he's got, isn't it? There's no point us going to a, a poor person and asking him for a fortune. And Paul here, well, he says, what I'm going to pray about is possible because the person I am praying to has got glorious riches. According to the riches of his glory. And it's not the only time Paul mentions that phrase. Because he says to the Philippians, after he's talking about need, and he says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. In Christ Jesus. And here he is. And as he begins his prayer. A prayer that's going to embrace all the family of God. He says to himself. And he says to us. What does our father possess? And it's important to note. And it's often been said. That. I, neither in this verse or in the verse in Philippians does Paul say out of his riches. It's according to his riches. And we've all heard the illustration that a rich man may give us a pound. And if he gives us that, he's giving out of his riches. But he's not giving according to his riches. And God doesn't give out of his riches. He gives according to his riches. And that makes all the difference. Because if God is going to give according to his riches, we can ask him for big things. And Paul just, that's step two in the process. An awareness of resources. And step three is that Paul realizes that it will all be given for nothing. Because he says that there, that he may grant you. Well, who pays for a grant? The God of heaven who's got infinite resources. And just imagine that in response to this kind of prayer, 
he has given an incredible amount in answer to it. Rather amazingly, his resources are still the same because they're infinite. They cannot be reduced. It's impossible. God can give for the whole of eternity. And this is impossible, what I'm going to say. But if we would say at the end of eternity, which will never happen, but for the sake of argument, he would still have the same resources. After giving and giving and giving. And these are the three steps in the process. Recognize the family of God. Recognize the riches of God. And recognize the liberality of God. And Paul says, do that before you pray. So what does he pray for? That leads us to the second thing. What is Paul expecting? Now, I suppose there's many ways of um, dealing with this particular aspect of things, but I want us to think about, about it by asking five questions. And question number one is this. What is meant by Christ dwelling in your heart? Because that's the first um, thing that's highlighted in verse 7. I'll come back to verse 6 in a minute. But when he says that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, what does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart? Does that not happen at conversion? By the time Paul has written this, there's been a long time since he's been to Ephesus. And he, he was there when most of the ones that he's writing to, they were converted. And on that occasion, Christ came and dwell in their hearts through faith. So what is he praying for here when he says again that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? Does that mean that somewhere in between Christ has stopped dwelling in their hearts? Of course, the answer to that question is, of course not. It's a continuation. He's praying for, isn't it? But I think he's praying for more than a continuation. He's praying for a deepening. For an increasing awareness of what it means to have Jesus in our hearts. I mean, how is Jesus in our hearts anyway? We know that he's up in heaven. I mean, as far as his person is concerned, his humanity, he has never left heaven since he ascended. So how does he dwell in our hearts? Well, we know the answer to that question. He dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could be in our hearts in lots of different ways. But Jesus specified in the upper room that when the Holy Spirit came, he would come as the Spirit of Christ. He would come as the other comforter. And as we know, the word other means another of the same kind. So it would be just like having Jesus with us. Except, as he said to the, uh, these disciples, it won't be with you in the sense of being sitting on a chair beside you as he was at that time he'll be in you 
So the Holy Spirit in our hearts functions as the Spirit of Christ. And he will do there what Jesus would have done if he was here in person. So it's amazing to have Christ in our hearts, isn't it? What an extraordinary privilege to walk around with the exalted Savior that close to us. I mean, between here and London, there's 600 miles or something like that. How great is the distance between our hearts and heaven? So that's question number one. What does it mean for Christ to indwell us? And the second question I wanted to ask is, how does he indwell us? I've kind of hinted that already by referring to the Holy Spirit, but you know, if somebody stays in your house for a long time, it would be in your interest to work out what kind of person he is, wouldn't it? So in the, the home of our hearts, how is Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, what's he going to do? And how is he going to do it? Well, I suppose lots of answers could be given to that question, but I just want to say three. He functions there savingly, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus, by the Spirit, comes as a Savior. That's his basic role. Without that one, there's no other one. He comes as a saviour. And even as when we have somebody in our house, they affect us. So the Holy Spirit in us affects us. And he affects us savingly in the sense that our response is continually trusting him and also repenting of our sins. Because in our hearts is the Holy One. It's not just any random visitor we've got. We have the Holy Spirit. They're revealing Christ to us and taking off the things of Christ. He does so savingly. At the same time, he does it sanctifyingly. There's never a moment, we want to put it this way, the Holy Spirit takes time off. His aim is to sanctify us. And he does that from moment one right all the way until the end of the journey. And sanctification just basically involves two things. He enables us to deal with our sins and we deal with that by taking them to God, confessing them, and mortifying our sins. And at the same time, he makes us like Jesus. And each one is the proof of the other. The proof that we're slaying our sins is that we're becoming like Jesus. Not that he ever did that. But now our sinful hearts slain of our sins and conformity to Christ goes together. We can't have one without the other. And that's sanctification. And that's taking place by the indwelling Christ. And he also does it very sweetly. I mean, you could have some people in your house and you actually wish they'd never come in. But that never happens with Jesus. 
His presence is so sweet. The whole atmosphere is just different. Wherever he comes, wherever he goes to, he has only to come from heaven. So the atmosphere of heaven comes with him. And in our hearts there comes this sense of peace, of warmth, of comfort. That's how he does it. And surely we say about that is that we are glad to have such a resident in our hearts. And Paul is praying for that. That Christ may dwell in your heart. And in our hearts have that effect. Third question I want to ask is, when are we rooted and grounded? There in um, in verse um, 17, it's a perfect, the two participles are both perfect tenses, which means that something happens with ongoing effects. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the thing that happens? And the thing that happens is that Christ is in our heart. At any given stage in the Christian journey, the start of something new is always that Christ is in our heart. And that's what it means to be rooted and grounded. It's from his presence that something happens. So they are rooted and grounded in love. And because he is there, he brings about the consequences. So at any given moment, we are being rooted and grounded for the next experience. And that's really extraordinary, isn't it? He's not referring back to our conversion when he says rooted and grounded. Rather, he's referring back, as far as I can work it out, to what Jesus has done a second ago. And because he has done that, there's consequences. And this keeps on going. And Paul is praying that the presence of Jesus in the hearts of these Ephesians would have effects. And the fourth question that comes out of that is, do we need divine input for this to happen? And the answer from Paul's prayer is, yes. We need the power of the Spirit But that's not surprising because for any blessing we've had in the past, we needed the power of the Spirit. And that's never going to change. So the next experience of the love of Christ, we need the power of the Spirit. That's just a basic. And Paul prays for that twice. He prays for it in verse 15 or 16, sorry, that we be strengthened with power through his spirit. And he prays that again in verse 18, that we may have strength, inner strength. You know, sometimes we can meet someone and after a while we realize we're out of our depths. Imagine talking about some historical topic to somebody and then discover you're actually speaking to a history professor. Well, what do you feel when you discover that? Or you might be talking to a person about the latest 
spacecraft has gone to the moon and then discover you're talking to somebody who knows all about it. And you just feel, well, I can't handle this. What's it like to meet Jesus? I mean, think of his glory. What's it like to meet him? Can we do it out of yesterday's experiences? However great yesterday's experiences might have been, how do they help me today? When I and you have to meet with the glorious Christ, we need divine strength. And the astonishing thing is, this strength is given by the Spirit, who's within us. And of course, Jesus wants this to happen. And he wants this to happen to all of his people. I read this quotation by someone which I thought was very nice. The man said, He who holds us all with equal firmness in the strong hand of his salvation is willing to be held by us in the secret chambers of our hearts. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Two grips, as it were. Christ's grip on us and our grip on him. He who holds us all with equal firmness in the strong hand of his salvation is willing to be held by us in the secret chambers of our hearts. And I have to ask myself after reading that, how strong is my grip of Christ? There's question five. What is Paul saying we need the strength for? Well, he says it's something simultaneous because we comprehend it with all the saints. How many of them are there? And he also says it's something stupendous because length, breadth, length, height, and depth. What is that? Well, I think he's telling us that it's stupendous. But it doesn't matter what direction you go in. Christ is there. And it doesn't matter where you go, he's everywhere. I mean, that must be what length and breadth and depth and height means. That into this space, for lack of a better word, that Paul has got in mind, Christ is everywhere. And of course, if he is everywhere, there's no space for anything else. So Paul is praying something incredible. And he calls it love that surpasses knowledge. Whose knowledge? I don't know if this helps or not. We'll be finished in a minute. But I was thinking of a, something I've never done. But that is attended, say, a physics class by a university professor. And you sit and you absorb everything he said and you think you've got some knowledge. And you step out of the room and meet Einstein. 
and you've actually discovered that your field of knowledge has got aspects to it that surpasses things. And when we come to Jesus, there's never going to be a time where we can say, I know it all. But Paul is praying for it. Surpassing knowledge. And he says, and it's words that are hard to understand, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now the fullness of God must be everything that's in God, mustn't it? And when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts as the Spirit of Christ, which part of his deity does he leave behind? I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? There's, within the hearts of believers, dwells the infinite God. And that infinite God is revealed to us even though we can't see him by Jesus Christ. And we might think all this is beyond us. But it's not. Everything in God is available for all of his people. And that's going to be the story of life in this world and life in the world to come. Just a brief word about the doxology. Quite often these verses in verse 20 and 21 are taken with no reference to what's been referred to in the previous verses. In this textology, Paul is talking about the power that is at work within us, which is what he's been talking about in the prayer. The Holy Spirit that is at work within us. And he says about this power now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Well, I suspect the asking or thinking refers back to what he's been praying for. This stupendous realization that he's asking that these um, Ephesians would grasp the incredible honor of having Christ in their hearts and of the consequences of what that's going to be. And we can't, we don't have the words to, to ask or think. When we say to Jesus, Jesus, help me. What are we saying? I mean, we have our little assessment of what Jesus, help me means. But we have the Christ of God in our souls. And that power... Well, it's just at work within us. The role of the Holy Spirit, as others have said it all down the centuries, is to teach us the benefits of Christ and his offices, of what it means that he's our prophet, priest, and king. And therefore, we can take these words of Paul's prayer and use them even if we don't have the grasp of things that Paul had. But he is saying to us, isn't he? Here's how you can pray. 
And if we were to pray like this, I suspect our minds would be expanded. And we would start to grasp something of what's there at the end of the doxology. That to him be glory in the church. That includes us. To him be glory in the church. And we, he gets the glory we might say when we discover the riches that he has to give. So here's Paul's prayer. It would be good for us, I suspect, if we just took the words and used them as our prayer. He's given us guidelines of what to say. Because when we believed in Jesus, we entered into something that will never end but that will always expand. And we have no idea of the greatness of the glory that awaits for God's people. So by just trusting in Jesus as sinners, we enter the family of God and ahead of us is an endless inheritance the contents of which we only discover by experience. And that goes for this life and the next life. Shall we pray? Lord, <clears throat> we know that Paul's prayer was very personal for him. But we also know that in a sense his prayer has become public. That you by the Holy Spirit have placed it in your word. And it's not placed there merely for us to look at the great apostle and say what an amazing man of prayer he was. But surely it is there for us to imitate him. No matter how far short we come and to even take the same thoughts as he had and just see if we can have the same discoveries that he had. So help us, Lord, to learn from this prayer and to utilize it. So remember us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen.